Sir, we've had a little problem. These two women are just arriving. They objected to giving up their weapons. Klingons do not surrender their weapons. Who are you? We are Lursa and Baton of the House of Duras. Hello and welcome to the Duras Sisters podcast. We are not Klingons, but we are sisters. And I'm Ashlyn. And I'm Rihanna. And today we are talking to the one and only John Billingsley. Thank God there's only one of him. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. This is a very exciting episode. We are currently in the middle of our holodeck series. We have released the original series episode and the next generation episode. So we're taking a little bit of a break from the series because we have a very important guest that we are going to be talking to today. And he's going to be promoting Trek Talks too, which is happening pretty soon. Woo-hoo. Very excited about that. But before we get into that, I just want to say Happy New Year to everybody. This recording will come out in 2023. Whoa. Happy New Year! <laughs> we made I'm it. <laughs> First dry January. Ooh, congrats. (laughs) Very nervous about. I posed to the missus the other night that we try it. She said, must we? And I said, I think we must. (laughs) Sometimes it's good. Cleanse you a little. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's a good time of year. I think so too. Yes. I've done Sober October in the past, and that tends to be hard because October can be a very, you know, stressful month, a lot going on. But January. What's going on in January, you know? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> We're supposed to, I know. I'm wrung out from all the socializing. January is a good month, so we're, we'll see what we can do. Yeah. Between us, we have the the just the tiny modicum of willpower, but we'll see. Perfect, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, yeah, we're just so happy to have you here. Um, we want to shout out to the Nerd Trek podcast. Jeff um, reached out and made this connection possible. I know you've been on quite the podcast tour promoting Trek Talks. I, I have been on quite the podcast tour. I know, I know. I'm sure that I I, I am just like worn out my welcome. It's like, oh, him again? We hear the same damn stories we've heard a thousand times. But I don't yes, think it's I'm... possible for you to wear out your welcome. <laughs> oh, believe me, believe me. Again, ask the missus. Yes, uh, Trek Talks too. We'll get to that in due time. But yes, yes, I'm I'm uh, flogging the hell out of it to promote the Hollywood Food Coalition. I think it's going to be very exciting. January fourteenth, can't Absolutely. wait. Absolutely, yeah. Awesome. I mean, it put it on our radar. We didn't know about it last year, so we're very excited this year mm-hmm. to take a look. Great. Yes. Absolutely. Um, all right. So we've had so many podcast hosts and Trek super fans on the podcast, but we've never had an actual actor from the show. So we're very Holy happy cow. that you were the yeah. first one. Oh. Yes. <laughs> The way that we run our podcast generally is we are a Star Trek philosophy podcast. So we take a look at all of the different Star Trek shows through a certain theme. So when Mm -hmm. we started off the podcast almost two and a half years ago, we did all the pilot episodes of everything. So we watched Mm -hmm. the pilot of original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and talked about them in each episode. Um, Currently, as I mentioned- From a philosophical point of view? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And just like what are pilots, you know, for the pilot series. Mm -hmm. Um, We went on to follow that up with the family series. So we watched every family episode in each mm-hmm. of those shows which was a huge undertaking jam-packed um, yeah <laughs> it was crazy especially next generation has like 40 family episodes it was insane mm-hmm. um, what defines a family episode meaning that one of the characters has a family member yes yeah, yeah. and essentially you got gets to see to talk dr about... flox's wife 
Yes. We sure did. Uh, yes, right. we did. Yes, that was a blast. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. Right now we're on the holodeck series, which is we're not at Enterprise quite yet, but that's going to just be a very. You don't short... have a holodeck series. Yeah, right yeah. Over. yeah. I think there's just the episode where Trip gets pregnant, and that's it. And that's yeah. really holodeck. So. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Um, but Rihanna, I want you to talk a little bit about how we got into Star Trek and especially Enterprise and our relationship with Enterprise. Yeah, absolutely. So we actually started to become Star Trek fans when we saw the trailer for the 2009 Chris Pine, like new reboot of the Star Trek movies. And we talked to our mom. We're like, oh, what's this? And my our mom was like, what? Are you serious? You've never seen a Star Trek movie. And so we were on vacation and watched all of the Star Trek movies besides The Next Generation, like all the original ones, and then went to see Star Trek 2009 and just fell in love and just like went crazy essentially with Star Trek. And we watched all the series in order all the way through. And I believe we got to Enterprise when I was almost graduating high school. So we'd started in middle school. So it just shows you how long we were watching through all these series. And it was a time where Ashlyn was going back and forth from like being in college and coming back to uh, Denver where we lived, where we could like watch on breaks and stuff. So it was really kind of a perfect communal family time for the two of us. And I think that's why Enterprise is so special to me too, because it was when my sister got to be home and we got to watch Star Trek together again. Um, and we didn't do a lot of watching over Zoom during that time or anything because Zoom wasn't think, a thing yeah, <laughs> back then. Existed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it's just, it's so special to be able to talk to somebody who's been on Enterprise and who has experienced that also, that sort of family feel that the show has. And yeah, and we sort of just launched off from there and decided to make a podcast during the pandemic. So it's been quite Fabulous. the journey. Fabulous. Yeah does make me laugh when I think, oh my god, I'm 62. I watched the original <laughs> show in 1966. That's yeah. amazing. Well, that's yeah. what I was wondering for you is, did you, so you were watching Star Trek, like, when it came out? I was a kid, and I watched it with my brother in his bedroom, and I, I, uh, of course, you know, at the age of six, you're scared easily, so I remember being kind of scared by certain episodes. The Salt Monster sure. was, like, I think the yes. first actual episode that aired. They didn't air them, uh, sequentially of course the first the pilot the menagerie was later repurposed and turned into a two-parter mm -hmm. so uh I, I do remember thinking what the hell is that <laughs> uh, it's so funny now you watch you know things made back in the 60s and you think how could i have been scared by that <laughs> paper mache rock that's a guy in a suit he's not a real lizard why was i you know totally mar marvelous power being six but um, I don't have clear memories of watching the show all the way through. I really remember reconnecting to Star Trek when I was a, a, a maybe 12 or 13. It aired on reruns in the New York area where I lived. And that's when I watched all the original series. And then it was kind of off my radar entirely, to be honest, until I got Enterprise. I was cognizant of it as a um, social phenomenon. And uh, I, I didn't really watch much television during those years. I was a theater actor for many years. I was traveling a lot. Um, and when I moved to Los Angeles to break into film and TV, I didn't have a pot to piss in, much less a television to watch. So <laughs> Fair. really, yeah. television was not at all in my cognizance, oddly, even though I was trying to break into it until I got the show. But I was perfectly aware that it was a life changer, nonetheless. I was certainly cognizant that there were such things as conventions and, you know, that it had had this long life. So I knew it was a game changer. 
you weren't yeah. going in blind. You knew what you were getting into. I definitely did. And I had some good friends who were big track fans. So I kind of asked them to give me the master class. Like, okay, well, give me all the species. What are they? I know there's a Klingon. I know there's a, a you know, a Vulcan. What, what are the rest of them? Oh, the Denobians, Cardassians. Not that that really actually changes anything about the work or what you're going to do when you get sure. the part. But, uh, you know, it was interesting to have a little bit of a crash course. And I watched some of each series to also kind of give myself a little bit of a grounding but of course denobula it's like well there's no denobula denobula what are they like it's on you yeah absolutely a lot of star trek actors i mean actors in general will go from the stage to television so i'm wondering what that transition was like for you if it was if it was easy or um did that background help for that transition well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I hear a lot that there's um, a sense that stage actors particularly do well on Star Trek because the nature of the, um, I think in part because when you're, you know, bedecked as an alien and you're having to adopt some alien mannerisms, some of the some of the uh, theatricality and some of the sh- uh, absence of shyness, you know, that is necessary to play a Klingon warrior helps. Um, I did not find the transition from stage to film and television particularly daunting. In fact, the reason I sort of gave up a stage career to become almost exclusively a film and television actor is because I was infinitely happier not having to hit the back wall and to actually um, gear the performance to... George Bernard Shaw has a very famous saying, in essence, that the performance is related to the optics of the theater. Mm-hmm. obviously before film and television mean that in a 3000 seat hall you have to find a way to justify making your choices rather large well sir i will not tolerate this whereas if you're playing in a 25 seat house sir i will not tolerate this and i found the latter which is obviously more akin to acting for the camera to be infinitely more comfortable and infinitely deeper for me because it felt truer so I, I quite took to film and television. And one of the reasons I moved to L.A. from Seattle was so I could, um, you know, really concentrate on it. There wasn't enough film and TV work in Seattle to justify staying up there once I decided I didn't really want to be a, a theater actor per se anymore. Sure. Yeah, at least sure. the place. Yeah. yeah. And I continued to do theater for a number of years, I, I, but I haven't done a play in about 10 or so years. And I, I can't say that I'm, I'm, I'm in all candor missing it all that much. I, I Many of my best friends are still theater rats and... I love to go to the theater, but um, for whatever reason, it's kind of passed out of my system to be a theater actor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure being an actor, period, hasn't kind of passed out of my system. I'm still happy to work when the work comes up, but, you know, so much of getting older is realizing that, you know, passages and transitions are to be embraced and not and not to be run from. And, and there are other things in my life that are causing, you know, giving me more more joy, one of them working for the Food Coalition. Sure. That's so wonderful. Yeah. Like finding stuff even outside of work because work isn't the end all be all like of life. True. Truly, you know, it's just. Yeah. No. And, yeah. and acting has meant a lot to me. I mean, it's what I've done my whole I started acting when I was a kid in the fifth grade and I, you know, I still am an actor. I still will take gigs and I still audition. So I haven't left it behind. But after mm-hmm. a whole lifetime kind of, you know, making it to something that was central to my being, I, I find that it is slightly less central than it used to be. Mm. Yeah, totally. I would like to talk about how you created flocks because, yeah, there has been no Denobulans by the time Enterprise is starting. Yep. So, was that just how was that like? I, I, like well, every time I see a new Star Trek species, yeah. I get really excited. So, how was that like for you? 
It's all on the page, first and foremost. Sure. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think actors, um, their job, our job is to um, do the best job we can at taking what the writers have given us and bringing it to life. So I never think that my job is to create a character so much as to um, fulfill the writer's expectations. Mm -hmm. And he, mm -hmm. they created a character who was clearly buoyant and positive and frank and um, uh, philosophical and curious all these wonderful things and um my only obligation was to understand what they were asking for and to find a way to channel what they were what they were looking for and, I, and they, they gave me a great gift i would not have been happy playing a klingon i would have been bad klingon obviously uh i would have been klingon that everybody beat the shit out of uh, <laughs> um and i would not have wanted to play a vulcan I have played in my career lots of creeps and losers and lunatics and serial killers and child rapists and you name it, just low lives galore. So mm -hmm. for me, this was actually kind of a wonderful opportunity to play somebody who was much more um, uh, that I'm much more in tune with. Uh, he 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 to me is somebody who I uh, I feel deep. Uh, I speak of him as if he's real. Um, <laughs> I'm more. I was more simpatico to this character's. Uh, worldview than I have been to any other character I've ever played. I love that. That's amazing. Yeah. Something we've noticed and just watching Enterprise, Phlox is a polyamorous character. And I don't think that has ever been discussed since. Oh, it, I, it has been. It has been. I bring it up all the time. Because, Good. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. No, I wanted him to be, um, obviously, you know, I, again, I don't write the script. So I, mm -hmm. it, there were a couple of instances where there were things that they suggested about Flocks, like he was in the Denobulan infantry, where I kind of went, hmm, I don't know about that. Mm -hmm. yeah. But 90% of the time, whenever they gave me information about Flocks, it was like, oh, I love that. Oh, I love that. I particularly <laughs> loved the idea that he was polyamorous. And although it wasn't suggested in so many terms, uh, uh, in so many words, I, I tried in the uh, scenes in, in, in which I think I, this came up when I was uh, 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 saving the Beagle's life in sickbay. I tried to suggest that while I had three wives and each of the wives had three husbands, we husbands were not averse to having our moments together. You didn't yes. have the words to do it, so I tried to do it with an eyebrow as best I could. I don't know if that translated or not, I, uh, but that my intention was to sort of put a flag in the in the ground and say, I'm the first gay Star Trek. Yes. <laughs> and so. I love that about that, like how you can add in that subtlety and still make it like, hey, like this is, you know, like we can be open to queer ideas and themes. Yeah, That's I, awesome. Yeah. I, I, what I loved about Flux is that, you know, it's like let a hundred flowers bloom. I mean, there were very, 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 very few instances where Flux's attitude was, was anything other than, you know, yeah. <laughs> variety. That's the whole point, right? Totally. I love that. I, I totally, I totally dug that. I mean, it's interesting because when I first got the pilot and I didn't have, you know, any sense of Denobulan culture, Denobulan society, I thought, well, how come we've never heard of Denobulans before? And I thought, well, maybe it's a monastic world. There are only a few Denobulans left and this guy's left because he kind of is lonely. And it turns out, no, just the opposite. You're the fuck <laughs> buddies of the universe and you're so crowded that there's no elbow room. That's why you left. It's like, oh, all right. Huh. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why we haven't seen more of us before, but yeah. And Absolutely. I haven't seen any after too. Like there's so many Star Trek shows right now yeah. and not a single Denobulan in sight. I think there was, I was told that there was, and maybe it was a cartoon Denobulan. I'm not uh -huh. sure. Might've been Lower Decks or something. Animated series, yes. 
No, I know, and I'm frequently asked whether I would come back as a as a, as a myself or some other Genobulan. I I think I don't know if I want to wear the makeup again. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah how I, was it in the chair? Did you have to be in it for a while, or you know, there are worse people have had worse experiences. Uh, you know, I Armin, who I love, I had to wear those choppers. I would never want to be a Klingon. The Borg, it takes forever. Yeah. Um. No, I I. I can't complain. Having said that, it was two and a half hours in the chair, Ooh, yeah. 45 minutes to take off the makeup, and you have these gargantuan blue uh, contact lenses that cover your eye. Mm-hmm. When they give actors alien contact lenses, they're too big to take into account an actor's stigmatism. So basically, they can kind of help you see well enough to not walk into the path of an oncoming truck. But they can't <laughs> make you see well enough to see a mark on the floor, I'll tell you that. And you can't sure. read. So, Reminds me of LeVar fun. Burton talking about the visor, how he just couldn't yeah. see for seven yeah. years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great. You know, I, 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 uh, <laughs> I was probably the only actor on our show, knowing that, you know, the ratings were not good and it was a miracle. We got four seasons. We were on a, a UPN itself, a dying network. So I thought four seasons, this is a miracle. When yeah. it came down, when the word came down that we were not going to go beyond four I think everybody else, in part because it was a family. The people who had been on the crew had been together for, you know, since the beginning of Next Gen. There was a deep sense of loss. I, I think mm-hmm. I was the only person who went, oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it would have been nice to have another year of salary. And I liked the people sure. a lot. But sure. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't think I'd ever do another prosthetics show as a regular. I was wondering about, because I think you, like your career, it seems like you were starting to like guest star on things like around 1991, like you were on X-Files and West Wing. 1998. Oh, 1998. Okay. I I lived in Seattle for a number of years and there Mm -hmm. were occasional uh, TV shows and movies that would come through town. I was on Northern Exposure. Mm -hmm. I was on a few other TV shows that, that shot in and around the Northwest, but they were few and far between. So I moved to seattle in 1995 i had a theater company that adapted fiction for the stage i handed that off to my colleagues and um and i started getting consistent work in 97. Uh, kind of break was nypd blue okay yeah yes so i had i had a show called the others uh that was my first series regular gig in 1999 and then that was short-lived and then uh and then i got uh, enterprise the, the year after that yeah, that the whole era of television is really interesting. And it's so different, like judging, I mean, Enterprise in itself is so different from everything that came before in the Star Trek world. Um, so I'm wondering, I, like, I know, obviously, everything that happened with the terrorist attacks in 2011, like, I'm sure 2001, informed, yeah. Or, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> dyslexia showing in 2001. <laughs> So I, I know that informed the writing of the show, but was there anything about the culture you thought that yeah. was specific? 2000 and, 2001, 9-11. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yes. And and I, I, uh, it, I'm very political and I'm, I'm, I'm something of a leftist. So I, I had some issues and some problems with the way we, um, w- with what season three meant. Yeah. Um, it, it has been pointed out to me that if you look at the arc of that season, the Zindi, the 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 evil bugs who had attacked America, you know, mm-hmm. particularly attacked mm-hmm. Florida. Florida, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. Th- th- that was a little hard for me to kind of like, you know, stomach. I will say at the end of the 
season when it became apparent that they were being manipulated in the, in turn by you know what one could argue would be imperialist forces yeah i suppose if you were to take a leftist point of view you could say that perhaps it was a, a more interesting critique mm-hmm. of, of global politics than i might have initially taken it for but it doesn't change the fact that in terms of what the hook was for the audience out of the gate it seemed very 24-ish yeah. Now, I love Manny Cotto, who um, basically took over the show in season three. I shouldn't say took it over, but he really took on so much of the responsibility for um, for running us for the last two seasons. Mm-hmm. And I think he wrote some terrific episodes and really brought um, a great new, fresh um, perspective on the show. A little too late, unfortunately, given what happened with us uh, in the first two seasons. The ratings were just not good. We couldn't recover. But having said that, he is he is more to the right mm-hmm. at, uh, in certain respects, and I think his his nine eleven take to me was was or the take of the show was jingoistic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, witness what happened with our interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq. I think some of that kind of you know get those bastards. Yeah, yeah. Um, a way of of thinking. And I remember right after nine eleven, I thought, oh my god, we are going to make every fucking mistake in the world in response to this. We're going to treat it like you know, like we have been given a blank check to go and attack anybody who was different than we are. And I think you know it's one of the reasons where where we are right now as a country. Absolutely. Yeah. Really well said. I think it's like every movie, every TV show at the time was Mm -hmm. talking about 9-11. So I think Star Trek is a show that, you know, they try to push the envelope and they try to like introduce things that are maybe not talked about as much. So it probably was inevitable, you know, Mm -hmm. to have like... I mean, what was what was bizarre and why I had such conflicted feelings is like, for instance, in that season, I believe there was an episode that basically was a similar crime of the uh, Israeli-Palestinian. Yeah. issue that i thought was infinitely more you know um uh, progressive and essentially said you know these doctrinaire religious differences are, are lunatic so within that single season i thought there was a you know a, a wide array of different episodes that that in certain respects on on a, just purely on a political front or a sociological front um appealed to me it was the framing device that i had an issue with of course yeah. what yeah. it did do though which i think was interesting in terms of what we needed as a show was it provided tension and the show True. i thought had lacked a certain amount of tension i thought it, there was a certain aimlessness about the mm-hmm. first and the second season you know the suliban um device did not work and, and mm-hmm. it was abandoned and then we were just another you know show about bopping around bopping mm-hmm. around and, and i right. i think I think there was a need to find some um, some ratcheting up, and it allowed certain episodes. One of my favorite being the one where we cloned Trip, as a, for instance. Oh, yeah. It allowed certain episodes to have a baked-in tension. We have got to get to, or we are going to be. So we've got to fit. We've got to clone Trip. We have no choice. That mm-hmm. kind of that kind of um, you know maybe artificial tension I thought, but nonetheless uh, real tension I thought gave the series a little bit more energy. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as far as your character Fox himself, like, was there an episode or an arc that you really loved, or or was like your favorite? Um, there are moments from a number of episodes that I quite liked. I mean, I did actually like the Night in Sick Bay, which was kind of a love-hate episode from the fans' <laughs> point of view. I think there are people who felt that it kind of um, 
um, made Scott's character seem silly or, or uh, you know, um, I don't know, decaptainized him in people's eyes. I didn't think that was entirely fair, but I guess I understood that point of view. For me, one, I loved working with Scott and it was a chance to spend a lot of time with him. And two, I thought it was a very nice balance of, of, of humor and um, and Floxian philosophy. I mean, to me, that was the episode where you got the biggest the most sense of like what this guy's um, uh, ethics were and maybe not ethics, but what his worldview was. Um, you certainly had had moments in a number of other episodes, but that to me was probably the episode that I look back on and think that's where I feel like I, you know, they gave flocks the most opportunity to be floxy. Totally. Yeah. I love that. I was and I did like the episode when my wife visits and he she hits on trip and I mean you know one I as I said to my wife when I came home it's like I finally get a love interest and she spends the whole episode trying to bed another guy I tell yeah, you come on come on yeah, nobody, nobody takes the character guy seriously as a love interest but I sort of loved his like oh she wanted he, she wants to take a rose petal bath with you you've got to do that you <laughs> must try absolutely. <laughs> His, one of my favorite scenes was just his like utter astonishment that Trip would say no. It's like, what? Crazy. <laughs> on a silver platter. What's going yeah, on? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, I I I'm thinking about um. You're talking about how the first two seasons, you know, kind of serial episodic, not much going on. I feel like that is really the transition in a lot of shows at that point, because especially Star Trek, it's like, that's mm -hmm. the thing is it's episodic. There's no long arc. DS9 like toyed with that. They had a lot of like seven part episodes that were yeah. like you had to watch them in order because a lot of these shows are just being shown on cable, you know, just come yep. on whenever you don't have to necessarily be at the screen every single time it, the show's on. And this is the era of trying to change that. I, feel I think like. 24 was in that sense, a real, mm -hmm. a real groundbreaker. For I mean, sure. one, yes. Talk about the classic nine 11 show, yeah. but also, you know, you're not, you ain't watching 24 out of order. No. And it was a huge success. <laughs> um, and yes, to your point, there were certainly other shows prior to 24 that had sequentiality. Even Friends had a lot of sequentiality. Mm -hmm. um, it was helpful to watch them in order, but it wasn't absolutely critical. Yes, and totally. I, I, I do think, yes, now that we're in a streaming world, it, it's that has all changed. There, that's one of the reasons that I think people still watch network television is it's like, you know, I can just watch NCIS without having to worry about whether I missed an episode of NCIS. True, yeah. Well, and so I just think it's a shame that Enterprise was canceled when it was because like you were saying, those last two seasons are so good. And I really felt mm -hmm. like if it, obviously it'd be a totally different show if it was made today, but it, we sure. would have got more seasons um, mm -hmm. if it yeah. had continued along that line. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's so many, I've, I've often talked about this because there's so many variables, including the fact that we were on UPN, which was simply yeah. put a network that was on its last legs. Mm. And um, I, I tell this story, we early on went, or some of us went to a convention in San Antonio, and nobody showed up. I was like, crickets. Like, hello, hi, Charlie, in the audience, you're the only guy? And Charlie said, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, they don't air it here, because UPN is, is uh, has, it's complicated, but basically ABC, CBS, NBC, when their shows were shown in different network, different markets all over the country, the individual markets couldn't choose to like not show it. 
UPN didn't have that clout. So in San Antonio, every Friday night when we were on at 10 o'clock, they said, nah, we got a high school football game we want to show you. Oh so it in San Antonio. And when when it became apparent to all of us that, that that was what was happening all over the country, some of it was people didn't take to the show right out of the gate. But some of it was any chance we might have had to win back a good portion of that audience disappeared when UPN itself did not help us actually, you know, through their syndicate, through their affiliate stations, reclaim our audience. Sure. Wow. It really was a miracle we got four years. Yeah. I was thinking we're not going to make it to two at the end of the first mm. season, but we made it to two. It was like, oh, we got two. <laughs> and then at the end of the second, we got third season. I can't believe it. It was like, well, UPN didn't have anything else. Yeah. You know? And then the fourth season, they still were going to cancel us. And Scott Bakula went to Carrie McCluggage and the various powers that be at the head of the of the of the studio and said, You got to fight for this with the network, please. Four years. That gets us one into syndication bill it gets us enough enough episodes so that the show will have a life afterwards so you know mm-hmm. but yeah. it really reminds me of the original series just how fraught it was even just to stay on air and if it wasn't mm-hmm. for the fans it wouldn't have gotten a third season and yeah. enterprise and it, just trying to break into that new and era and it's funny totally. looking back now the history of television you were talking about back before there were eight thousand channels when it was three channels mm-hmm. uh, shows would get canceled when they had 15 million people watching because that was not enough you know crazy <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, oh, that's wow. the same i mean show now if you had 15 million people watching every week it'd be like it's the biggest hit on television <laughs> you totally. got game of thrones <laughs> yeah yeah, <exactly>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. crazy it's strange because i feel like you know as 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 I, mean, I like to read more than anything else so i don't i don't watch a ton of television but i do think it's interesting from a, a historical perspective that what we gain what we lose we gain this you know extraordinary variety of content which is great and I think the quality of the content is much higher than it ever was. What you lose is the idea of a, um, a cultural touchstone, a water cooler mm-hmm. conversation that we can all kind of bond together. You know, back in the day, they used to say everybody watched Walter Cronkite when he came out against the Vietnam War. That changed people's perception of the legitimacy of the war. Mm-hmm. I think right now we're so fractured and fragmented because to a certain extent, no one agrees on any one thing that we all should watch, all should read, all should talk about, all should pay attention to. Yeah. 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 Hard to find. Such a good point. Yeah. 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 You were saying, so you like to read, what's your favorite kind of genre um, of like storyline and storytelling? I read all sorts of things. I read a lot of literary fiction. I read a lot of classics, but I also kind of leaven it with mystery novels but you know there's even within the realm of genre of mystery or sci-fi there's still a difference between good writing and less interesting writing so i try and always read something that is well written if the prose isn't good or the storytelling isn't crisp i'm not that interested and That's, i read a lot of, i'm the same way yeah <laughs> and i read a lot of nonfiction. um i read a lot of history i read a lot of political science and philosophy and some smattering much less so of science and um, you know, um, my mother was a behavioral psychologist, so, so cool. I, read, uh, I read some stuff like that. Oliver oh, yeah. Sacks, I was just reading the other day, who I think is fabulous. Yes, totally. Rihanna was an English major, so she's the uh, literary side. Oh, yeah. okay. I, I hear about books and I get very excited. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I wanted to be a librarian when I was growing mm. up. So uh, I used to cut school and go to the library and call my mother and say, you know what? I just didn't feel like it. Uh, she, she kind of pretended to be mad. Like, you have to go to school. 
Yeah, how dare you go to the library? <laughs> and then she'd come to the library, and she she and I would spend the entire day in the library. Oh, that's special. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. When I found out it was library science, and it was actually like, wait, I don't just get to sit by the desk reading a book, telling other people what they should read. You know what you might want to read? Oh, no, yeah. I don't do that. <laughs> So true. That's, that's exactly my dilemma right now. I work at a library at a university nearby, oh. and uh, I could do that library science route, but I just don't know if I will be <laughs> passionate enough to get through. I know. Yeah. I know. I know. What I actually, I uh, what I do read about every now and again. In fact, there was just something in the Washington Post about this guy who uh, had taken over uh, running a bookstore in a small Scottish town, mm -hmm. and. Scottish town was trying to reinvent itself as uh, as you know one of the most uh, um, uh, popular bookstore driven towns in the world <laughs> and uh, it was he's written three books about his experience as a, as a guy who runs a used bookstore that was another like you know hmm but as my wife has frequently said you would never want to sell one of your books it would be like all <laughs> buy and no sell it's like I oh, know you can't have that no you can't you can't have that sorry so, this is mine <laughs> no <laughs> She's I right mean, it. it looks like you've quite the collection behind you, so you could just start a, a loan system through your own house. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I kind of do that in a, to a to a certain extent. I I'm I'm at an age now where, you know, this is just one room, and you're, and it doesn't Love it. doesn't really quite show the the sprawl of it all. But yeah, no, I've got a I've, I've got a very patient wife who I make fun of, but I just absolutely adore. She's the light of my life, and she's very, very, very gracious about letting me turn our our house into basically a just you know dust ridden <laughs> youth book emporium. <laughs> so I have started now kind of giving books away more. Like if I go to a party or you know in any social event, I usually bring some books for people. It's like hey, you might like this, you might like that. That's Which thing is that, yeah. go out and buy ten times as many books as I just gave away. So it yes. ultimately doesn't work. I, it evens out, yeah, absolutely. It evens out. No, I know. And I have a reputation now of sorts, a small reputation amongst amongst friends of mine who um for instance a lady I know, her father died and she asked me if I would go through his books to see if there's mm -hmm. anything worthwhile. And the you know, unstaken, um, uh, the the unspoken understanding is that I'll I'll give I'll set aside the ones that I think might have value and suggest what she might do to to you know where she might take them, and I'll take all the rest. Yep. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and I'll dispose of them as I see fit, which means, of course, like I'll keep that one, and, yes. I'll, keep that one, and I'll keep that one. It's like yeah, that's great. Yeah, you just get to expand your library. <laughs> yeah which is now as you as you can perhaps see unfortunately you know the one thing my wife said when she uh when we married was like okay shelved but not stacked and it's yeah. like <laughs> that's gone that's gone now the, the shelves are like full to the brim and shelves hiding shelves hiding shelves and now the stack my the people say the books on your bedside table it's like well my bedside table is very small the stacks next to the bedside table have become the bedside table <laughs> yes <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is. And I confess, it's one of the things I find is like, you know, I'm, what I always liked about acting for film and TV is, you know, hours on the set, you're very rarely working. Mostly, yeah. it's like I'm getting paid to read. This is heaven. Yeah, that's uh, the dream. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, I love I love talking with you. I want to move on to talking about the Hollywood Food Coalition and everything Great. going on with Trek Talks. So we will you just go for it. Tell us about yes. Trek Talks. Yes. Well, first, let me tell you about the Hollywood Food Coalition. Trek Talks is in support of the Hollywood Food Coalition, which is a little under 40 years old. And it started in Los Angeles, essentially as street service for people experiencing homelessness, centered around a nightly multi-course meal. 
we also provided an array of ancillary services. We handed out shoes and socks and sleeping bags and tents and toiletry kits and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, as we grew and we moved indoors and we began to expand the quality of the meal and we began to coordinate service provision with other social service partners. We work with UCLA medical program. They bring a medical van, dental van, vision van. We try and help people get into housing programs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We began to also think, well, we are we are serving a terrific uh, a community of, of lovely people who are unfortunately experiencing tough times. But there are people experiencing tough times all over the city. Is there a way we could do more? So my wife and I, when we got involved about six years ago, we sort of started thinking about how could we rescue more food, both for our own kitchen, but maybe ultimately for some of our neighbors. And that kind of grew and morphed and shifted with the board support and the organization support. And everybody came together and felt like, yes, this is a worthy thing to do. And we now have something called the Exchange, which is a separate warehouse. We rescue about 2 million pounds of food a year. And we share that food with about 130 other social service providers to buttress and augment their meal programs. So we work with organizations that um, help women who've experienced spousal abuse. We work with organizations that work with um, kids who are, if they're not on the streets, are, you know, nonetheless at-risk kids. We work with... Um, organizations that basically take our food and try and distribute it to low-income communities for people who are housebound and can't get to the grocery stores. In a way, we're trying to say there's so many different organizations all trying to figure out ways to serve distinct communities. And the one thing that they all need if their programs are going to work is to make sure that the people they're working with get good meals every day. And lastly, we also work with a variety of these social service organizations to try and come up with systemic solutions to problems that one organization cannot deal with on its own. For instance, rescuing food requires a fleet of trucks, a raft of volunteers, lots of cold storage, lots of capacity to mull and cull and mulch, lots of uh, connections with small groups that need the food. We're trying to figure out how do we work collectively as a city to do more, to get more food to more people in need. Uh, one in five, depending upon the statistics, American children wake up food insecure, which mm -hmm. is to say not that they're necessarily going to go hungry, but they don't know what they're going to eat, when they're going to eat, whether it's going to be any good or whether there'll be enough. And uh, so, you know, that for whatever reasons, I can't quite explain it has always been sort of like a, you know, like just issues of poverty in America, mm -hmm. especially just kind of drive me nuts. So that's sort of what the organization's like. Track Talks was a response, um, an attempt to help generate revenue. And we've grown quite a bit in the last five or six years. But we also wanted to see if we could use um, this wonderful population of folks who by sheer dint of the fact they care about star trek have demonstrated their interest in uh progressivism positivism coalition building to see if we could kind of get that message out to as many people as we can and kind of tie it a little bit to the hollywood food coalition so it is an eight hour digital jerry lewis-esque telethon with a raft of star trek stars who will be interviewed there will be cream pies Probably not. There will be musical interludes. <laughs> there will be uh, badinage. There will be philosophizing. And uh, throughout this eight hours, you will see me pop in and say, can you give us a little money? Give us money. 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 Ah, 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 ah. That's my job. 
TrekTalks.net is the uh, place to go to check us out. That links to Hollywood Food Coalition, and you'll find all the different platforms that you could um, listen on, including the Trek Geeks, uh, the uh, Roddenberry Podcast, YouTube, lots of ways to listen. 10 a.m. Pacific to 6 o'clock Pacific, and some amazing guests. Jonathan Frakes, Armin Shimmerman, Terry Farrell, Nana Visitor, a couple of people that are going to blow people away that they're coming, but I can't announce them yet. Ooh, okay. Look for a couple of very special guests who are coming. John Delancey is going to be there. Uh, we're going to have Anthony Montgomery. We're going to, I, I, you know, I can never remember everybody. We're going to have some wonderful panels um, about what we call Trektivism, the science of Star Trek. Uh, a tribute to um, uh, Nichelle Nichols, the sci-fi sisters are going to yes. put together. It's going to be a great show. Did it last year, made $80,000. Our goal this year is to make 100. I think, I think you've it. got it in the bag already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this sounds amazing. And it's so nice because it is all online. And so people can check it out wherever they're at, you know, yeah. put it on your phone, Absolutely. on mute at work. Like it, it's easy. It's like a yeah. convention that you can attend in your pajamas. Yeah. For charity, <laughs> even better. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. We said somebody last year said something which really actually meant a lot to me. Said, you know, I've never been able. I never thought I could go to a convention. You know, I don't have. A, I don't have a, a a ton of dough, and you know, I'm I live in you know, kind of off the off in the um, off in the boonies. This was an opportunity for me to experience what a convention was like, and I made a donation. But it was not, you know, it it didn't cost me an arm and a leg. Yeah. It helped you guys. I got to have this wonderful eight-hour experience. Thank you. Let's do it again. We said, we will do it again just because of you. And I can't remember who you are, but you know who you are if you're listening. <laughs> they know. Amazing. Yeah, that's so I mean, important. And I think the fact that you're bringing Trek fans into it, like we all love uh, the the vision that Trek brings. And so the fact that you are all embodying that is so special. And we really appreciate like- And Rod, ways, is, like, Rod is coming. Rod yeah. is going to be going to be there at the kickoff. Amazing. You know? Uh, mm-hmm. And Heidi is going to be there to speak about the work that the foundation does. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's really, it's, it's, uh, we're very, very excited. I'm wondering, so once, you know, you have the hype, everything's going to happen in a couple weeks. And then once that dies down for the rest of the year, what are people who are living in LA, like, what could they do to volunteer? What kind of like opportunities are there to help with the Hollywood Food Coalition? If you're in LA, um, and again, you can go to trektalks.net and that will link you to our website, but just for, shits and giggles uh it's hofoco h-o-f-o-c-o dot org people can sign up on our website to come in and help cook or help serve every night we we have not missed a night in 40 years basically wow. it's seven nights seven nights a week and we serve a multi-course meal with choice one of the things that we consider to be really important is the idea that everybody who comes to us has what we call the dignity of choice what mm-hmm. we, what would you like would you like a carnivorian vegetarian or vegan option we have fruit salads, green salads, multiple desserts, different kinds of beverages. It used to be table ser- table service. Unfortunately, because of COVID, we had to go to a to-go model. We're desperately anxious to get into our, our new space, a new space, which we're beginning to kind of set the, set the stages for, where people can actually be served restaurant style. They can sit down. There will be a menu. There will be a server. So much of what we believe it happens. Uh, I know you're asking me about volunteer opportunities, but I, I do like to talk about this as well. Yeah. One of the things that we think is really important is, is you know, there is a tendency in our society to think that somebody is poor because they are at fault and they should be punished. 
that, you know, if we only withhold services, if we only withhold food, then they will come to their senses and they will make better choices. Tisk tisk, this moralizing that is unfortunately kind of written in the Judeo-Christian peculiarly for what Christ actually had to say mm -hmm. about kind, gracious, and warm. The twisted messaging, I think, in our society is something that, to me, our organization really tries to kind of say, bullshit, you know? It's about consistency, it's about value, it's about treating people with deep empathy and compassion, and only because you have this meal available every night do people begin to trust you. From that, you might be able to say, can we introduce you to this other organization? Because some of the substance abuse stuff you've wanted to address might best be addressed by them. Or this organization might be able to hook you up with a temporary housing solution. Or I know you've kind of, you know, you feel like you don't have any identification. So you can't, this organization can help you figure out how to reacquire the ID you need to be able to apply for jobs. That, that to me so much is the basis of what we do. So volunteers who come to us in a very long-winded way also get to know some of our clients and we have found that a lot of volunteers it has radically changed their worldview because they are beginning to make connections with people who are less fortunate than they are and discover that these people are um are are in many instances you know there before the grace of god um if you are not of a mind to cook or serve we also have uh, opportunities to volunteer at the exchange where you can help um, take the food as it comes in, sort it, cull it, package it up, and send it out again to the umpteen organizations that come by every day to pick it up. We have every Sunday something we call the Sunday Sack Lunch Bonanza Program. There are hundreds of families all over L.A. County that make multi-element sack lunches. We gather them together on Sunday, and we share them with about 30 groups that fan them out all over the city. You can help be part of that. Um, I came in to make a fruit salad and I became the board president. So the sky's the limit. <laughs> what do you think it happened? Yeah. Room for advancement. Yes. And I'll say one other thing. Um, you only have to ask me one question. I can just talk all day. Forgive me. Um, <laughs> no, you're fine. The other thing that I think is really important is you, you probably don't, if you're listening to this, live in LA, but there's an organization in your hometown. There is some place, if you are kind of feeling like, you know, especially New Year's Day, New Year's resolutions, like a little bit of an itch, like, can I do more? The answer is yes, you can. And it's, I think, to me, about figuring out what you can do locally that makes a difference in your neighborhood. I'm not a believer, but I've, I've read the Bible, and I do love that expression, brighten the corner where you are. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that's interesting to me is it people to encourage them to kind of figure out what is my volunteeristic bliss? What would I be happy doing? Would it be teaching kids to read, volunteering in the school, helping to work at a soup kitchen, maybe volunteering for a social service organization or, 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 or. The question sometimes is just like Google, mm -hmm. community, community, community. What's in my community? What can I do? What can I do? I think in a way that is more the operative question because probably a very small number of people could end up volunteering for us. But I'm a definite proponent of volunteer, volunteer, volunteer. Yeah, well, and John, like you said, like it's so important because there's something that you will want to do regardless of like where you're at, you know? And so I think that it's important to remember you don't just have to make lunches to make a difference. You can choose what you're most invested in and just go for it. Yeah. So and cool. I, think, I think it's interesting because I think, you know, sometimes people aren't even necessarily 
cognizant of all the different things that are out there in the universe that they could get involved in. I did this exercise once for a couple of days. Um, I read the New York Times and I got a yellow marker out. And every time in the New York Times, there was a reference to a, a charitable organization or a social service organization. I just highlighted it. And over the arc of three days, it was like, wow, look at all these groups doing these amazing things you know, that I've never heard of before. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. you know, in microcosm, I think the same thing is probably true where you live. And even if you're living someplace so off the grid that there's not a lot to do, you can still in this digital age find ways to connect to like-minded souls and get involved in volunteeristic actions, you know, that don't require you to leave your bedroom if you don't want to. <laughs> yeah, you know? absolutely. And it's a dial. I think it's really important to think of it this way. Mm -hmm. I think of it like a tug of war. It's like, you know... It's unfortunate that there are sons of bitches in the world, I wish there weren't, who are motivated primarily by greed, acquisitiveness, and screw your neighbor. I wish those people weren't around, but they are. And so this tug of war that is perpetually going on between people who are wanting to pull towards virtue and people who are wanting to pull away from virtue, our job is not to be on the tug of war line every, every day, every minute of every day. It's not human to think that way. It's just to kind of say, I'll be on the line a little bit more you know, a little bit more than I am, to just kind of justify to yourself, if you guys are philosophers, you know Pete Singer? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not a Pete Singer guy, because I think Pete Singer puts you in a position where you feel like if I'm not doing everything, I'm I'm an asshole. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm and a moral. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's human is to say, I could do a little bit more, and I'll do it in a way that doesn't kill me, and then I'll feel better about myself, and that'll make me want to do a little bit more. So I think of it as like a dial. It's just like, can you dial up your service? Is this much? Well, and change doesn't happen overnight, but if you look at the progress that can be measured month by month by month, suddenly, you know, like like you're saying, you're you're getting a new facility, you're able to help more and more people in your area. And I think that's what's important is just doing what you can every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the history of progressivism, when you look at like what FDR did during the New Deal, I mean, for the most part, when he took office, the first thing he did was he called Francis Perkins, who was kind of the person who had really kind of, you know, pioneered a lot of what became New Deal programs in New York, in her community. I mean, it was New York, so it was still a big deal and a big lift. But the idea that the federal government is, you know, is going to be the only laboratory through which insight and innovation comes, it's not historically the way things work. Things mm -hmm. bubble up. No, and if exactly. you've ever been to a post office, you know the government. The government is not the most efficient way to do things. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it. You know, I, I, I do. I never bash the government because every time I turn on the tap and I get clean water, and the fact that I'm not yeah. the air, and the fact that there's Social Security and Medicare and food stamps, which is the single mm -hmm. biggest, you know, solution to poverty and hunger we know. Mm -hmm. You need an activist federal government, but it's not probably likely that 99% of us know how to plug into those efforts in a way that makes us feel animated or better about ourselves or does things to help our community. Absolutely. So true. Yeah. So sometimes my interviews, I just make jokes and sometimes yeah. my interviews, <laughs> I talk about Actate and then sometimes my interviews, I talk about this stuff and I, 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 it's all, I'm never, I never sure which direction it's going to go. So sure. You're, yeah. You're getting the less frivolous side of John Billingsley than most people. <laughs> No, it's quite inspiring, especially like you said, the new year coming up. I think this is a perfect time to reevaluate how you're spending your time and making sure that it's meaningful. I know mm -hmm. Rihanna and I growing up, we grew up in a church, have kind of departed from that mm -hmm. way of life, but we went on a ton of 
um, like mission trips in different parts of the United States, helping different communities. And especially we grew up in Denver. So we spent a lot of time in downtown Denver helping people. And mm. that has completely changed my worldview. And even mm-hmm. if we Same. had just done it once, I still would have been like changed. So yeah. I can't say I can't agree with you more and just say like it's very important yeah. to get out there and this is a good good thing for me too I'm in um, Hampton Virginia right now and oh. uh, there's always always stuff you can do I know there's a lot of organizations out here that I need to be helping out yeah it's true they're everywhere yeah yeah I yeah, know I know and it's I mean I find that sort of also you know just on a on a on a selfish level it's um it's really hard these days to not kind of despair I mean, yes. there's a lot to feel despairing about. Nick Kristoff, who writes at the Times, writes an article every year on January 31. He wrote it again today, in which he says, this is the best year that's ever, you know, child diseases eradicated and more fewer people living in poverty. This year, he said, it's a, still a good year, but not the best year. Yeah. So, yeah, mm-hmm. things are hard. Um, when Nick Kristoff says that, things are tough. Still trying to be optimistic. I think it's really important for those of us who want to experience optimism, Captain, to kind of find ways to um, experience it in practice, mm-hmm. not just in theory. And I think it gives one a, a, a deeper happiness to know that one is making a difference. So above and beyond the practical effects of what it might do for your community, in terms of self-care, I think it's a really important part of self-care. That's huge. Yeah, I find that sometimes I feel so much better when I just go and make a care package for someone I love or go and, you know, donate to some organization. If I'm feeling really down, helping others is like one of the best ways to get yourself back out of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And we live in a very, you know, um, narcissistic culture in many respects. And and it is it is it is a trap, you know. Yeah, yeah it really can be absolutely and social yeah. media obviously is you know is problematic in that sense too i mean you know a lot of people spend a lot of hours kind of you know banging away at the keyboard having arguments that you're never going to win and you know i i i think that one of the great solutions to not getting hot-headed about everything is to put some of that emotional energy into you know it, practical Absolutely. Well, I think a lot of people spend time sculpting their perfect life on social media. So it looks like, oh, I'm living this dream life when in reality, it might not be that way. So how can you turn your Instagram into actual (laughs) who you really are? And I really like what you said about making your corner brighter. It's Mm -hmm. it's a great takeaway for sure. Yeah. Yeah. This has just been so much fun. I'm so happy we got to talk to you today. And I'm wondering, in the year of 2023, do you have any other projects coming up? You're going to continue on with the Hollywood Food Coalition, I assume. Continue on with the Hollywood Food Coalition. I stepped down as the board president last year. A wonderful gentleman named Brian Mathena has taken over. We hired a new executive director, um, who I think, Anali Ray, who I think is terrific. We've expanded our staff. So for the last five or so years, I'd been more in the daily trenches than I am now. And I'm kind of enjoying the fact that the organization is doing well, but I'm not necessarily, I still am chair of the development committee, so I still have a fair amount to do, but it's not as onerous. Yeah. So maybe travel a little bit more. You just never know in the acting biz whether work will come your way or not. And and especially as I get older and the nature of, of um you know, ageism in Hollywood is people, people don't make a lot of shows about 
old fat four eyed guys. That's just mm-hmm. they, there ain't a lot of them. Um, and the the supporting roles frequently are kind of tedious. It's like, yeah, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that. And yeah. the missus and I have worked in this industry for a long time. We don't have kids. We don't need the dough. So I, I tend not to think about, you know, like what might be coming up work-wise, you know. So sure. I don't know. Um, I can tell you what, what my, is on my nightstand, what the books I'm going to read. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, beyond that, um i don't know i don't i don't know what's that old expression uh, uh, uh life is what happens when you're making other plans totally <laughs> one that i quite like is man proposes god disposes absolutely yep <laughs> well said oh my gosh well this has been such a wonderful discussion today john and we just are so grateful that you're coming around doing this uh extensive podcast tour and we're so so thrilled that you were able to participate in ours and get to talk with us because it's really special to have uh just such great insight into trek and into the uh, amazing work you're doing oh well thank you very much thanks for having me and yeah if you guys uh, if you guys you know in the two weeks leading up to january 14th want to bang the drum if you want to share on your your feeds or what have you bless you and huzzah yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I want to remind people, they everyone goes to conventions all the time. You're spending so much money there. You could put that same money you put into conventions into donating for uh, Trek Talks and the Hollywood Food Coalition. So please yeah. just go crazy. Yes. <laughs> uh, but don't be shy. If you want to watch and you don't have a lot of dough, that's yeah, okay. That's also that's yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. We take all donations from small donations to very large donations. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Oh, well, thank you so much. And uh, listeners, we will have links in our bio to everything that we just discussed today. So please make sure to tune in to Trek Talks too. And John, it's been so wonderful getting to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank My you. Delight. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Dura Sisters podcast. Please tune in next week for the third episode of our Holodeck series where Ashton and Rihanna will discuss the photonic friends and foes in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check to see our suggested watch list for our upcoming episodes. Also take a moment to check out our content on Tumblr, TikTok, YouTube, and our merch on Threadless. All links can be found in the bio of any of our social media pages. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a review on whatever platform you listen. By donating any amount per month, you can become a monthly patron and unlock our exclusive reviews of Lower Decks, the animated series, a review of Galaxy Quest, and Star Trek trivia. You can find all of this and more at patreon.com slash the Dura Sisters podcast. If you would like to contact us for any reason, please do so at the Dura Sisters podcast at gmail.com. We have covered podcast series like pilot episodes, family, time travel, feminism, and first officers. If you haven't heard any of these series, please check out these and many more and adventure into any of these awesome episodes. Social media and marketing by me, Ashlyn Gelman, and Rihanna Hurd. Editing is done by Rihanna Hurd and Ashlyn Gelman. Our intro and outro is by Jerry Goldsmith.